Hello and welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My name is Errol Yabake. I am a senior fellow here at CSIS and the deputy director of the Project on Prosperity and Development. Uh, we're really excited to have this event. I think it's a very timely event for a whole host of reasons about um, what comes next in Afghanistan. We'll be talking about reintegration, we'll be talking about jobs, we'll be talking about employment, we'll be talking about vulnerable people. Um, and to kick us off, uh, unfortunately the, the Afghan ambassador is unable to join us this morning. So we are um, humbled and honored to have the political counselor, uh, Mr. Barakat Rahmati, uh, to offer a few introductory remarks, after which we will go to the panel. Uh, just a few, um, uh, logistical things. Uh, in the case of emergency, uh, the best way to, to leave the building is, is uh, the door that you came in on. Restrooms are out to my right, to your left, um, and we will uh, kick it off very soon. Mr. Uh, Barakat Rahmati is the political counselor at the Afghan Embassy here. He has a long and storied history in, in the Afghan uh, Foreign Service, so we're, we're honored to have you here, and I'd like to please welcome you to the stage. Thank you, Errol. Good uh, morning, everyone. Um, let me begin by thanking uh, CSIS for organizing this very timely event. Um, let me also begin by conveying warm greetings from Ambassador Rahmani, who was, uh, who was not unfortunately feeling well and who could not attend this event uh, herself, although she was very much excited to be here today with you. Um, I would like to also recognize the distinguished panel here, uh, and I look forward really to see the discussion uh, about this very important and timely, uh, timely uh, topic. Um, so, distinguished participants, I feel so happy that we are gathered here today at a time when peace appears in the horizon to the extent that we are uh, already talking about a, a post-peace reintegration. The government and people of Afghanistan uh, will be main beneficiaries of any peace process because war, wars are extremely costly across all countries and conflict has had a major impact on Afghanistan economic development. The average cost of civil war in, uh, is equivalent to more than 30 years of GDP growth for a medium-sized developing country. Ongoing conflict reduces annual GDP growth by an average of 1.4 percentage points. Geographical areas especially exposed to conflict and contested political control have experienced reduced private sector activity, limited access to services, limited infrastructure provision, and increased unemployment. Any successful reintegration plan must certainly address these elements. Having a successful experience of making a political settlement with Hezb Islami through an intra-Afghan dialogue and negotiation process, we recognize the complexities surrounding any peace uh, negotiations. It is important to recognize all elements involved in a peace process. I will share with you uh, some insights about the elements um, shortly. But before that, let me share with you some information about the nature of conflict in Afghanistan, because I think these are very important uh, to note um, when we are talking about putting an end to the conflict. The conflict in Afghanistan is not a civil war, but a complex conflict fed by regional dynamics that at times act in support of terrorism and 
in turn enables transnational and regional terrorists and criminal, uh, criminals to operate in and out of Afghanistan, hitting targets in our neighborhood or targets of their choice across the world. The availability of safe sanctuaries and institutional support for violent extremism in our immediate neighborhood also helps sustain a deadly and destructive war in Afghanistan. Without such a support, uh, support infrastructure, the conflict in our country would have not lasted. As I put forward, regional dynamics and power politics are inseparable elements of the prolonged conflict in Afghanistan. Ladies and gentlemen, in addition to the external aspects of the insecurity and the important role that they can play in making peace a possibility, three key dynamics underpin the peace process in Afghanistan today. First, Afghans must have the ownership of any peace process. Second, inclusivity is the key to a successful and sustained peace process in Afghanistan. And third, strong institutions are essential for implementation of any peace deal. It is also important to recognize that the people of Afghanistan overwhelmingly want peace, unity, and cohesion is necessary for sustaining people's confidence and support to peace. This is why preserving constitution and democracy is imperative in Afghanistan. Government of Afghanistan took necessary steps and offered an unprecedented, unconditional uh, peace package to the Taliban on February 28, 2018. Ability to deliver services and jobs is essential for reintegration. And the government of Afghanistan has also introduced a very pragmatic package of economic initiatives towards economic self-reliance until 2024. This economic package is not merely humanitarian assistance, but one that contributes to the livelihood, the, the sustainable livelihood of Afghans. And the government of Afghanistan is leading several regional initiatives to emerge itself as a regional asset for trade and transit. We would like to also recognize the important role that the United States as our foundational partner plays in all of these processes. Today, I wish to emphasize in two particular points, the, the importance of recognizing the ownership of the Afghan people in the peace process and the importance of post-peace economic rehabilitation of the society. As to the issue of ownership, in fact, a peace process that people of Afghanistan as its main beneficiaries can't find their, their reflection in it, would not have the opportunity to sustain. Nowhere in the world can we find a successful peace process that is made in the absence of its main beneficiaries and without a, a strong implementing partner in that country. The peace process must also be accompanied with adequate and comprehensive economic planning and a well-thought, well-crafted reintegration program. I am honored to share with you that the government of Afghanistan has put together comprehensive reintegration and economic accelerator programs, details of which I will share with you momentarily. Distinguished friends, let me present a few figures about the progress that Afghanistan has made in the past 18 years. Despite ongoing conflict, substantial gains in socioeconomic development have been achieved over recent years. And most of these uh, points I am highlighting here are, are based on the reports from the World Bank. Per capita income have more than doubled in, from 2002 in Afghanistan. The enabling environment for private sector has allowed diversification of the economy. The number of children in school has increased from around $800,000 always in 2001 to more than 9 million kids today, uh, almost half of them girls. 
With improved access to healthcare, the life expectancy has increased from 44 years in 2001 to 61 years today. And we have, today we have a very strong national security and defense force that, that are in the front line of, of the, the war against terrorism. Women's access to education and employment has substantially improved. Today we have a parliament with almost 33% representation of women. And women are now active leaders in government, business, and civil society. Distinguished participants. The Afghan government introduced a self-reliance economic accelerator package. It's not a vision, but it's an actual pragmatic and practical plan. The self-reliance accelerator package creates about 1.48 million full-time equivalent jobs. Almost a million young, uh, young people uh, enter the job market in Afghanistan every year. The package has also has been designed to create job opportunities for the unemployed and improve the overall living standards. These economic and employment opportunities are fundamental to enhancing confidence in Afghanistan and promoting stability. And of course, these are uh, important for any reintegration plan. I'll skip some of the data I, I wanted to introduce here. I just want to also uh, tell you that Afghanistan also has a citizen's charter program that aims to reduce poverty and break the cycle of fragility and violence. And as of November 2018, Citizens Charter has uh, reached uh, nearly 10,000 urban and rural communities in 34 provinces in Afghanistan. That's all provinces in Afghanistan. And we have reached 9 million people. To date, more than 100 million of community grants have been disbursed, and nearly 6,000 projects, projects have been approved and are in various stages of implementation. And these are practical steps we have taken towards reintegration of whether returnees, IDPs, um, uh, or, or uh, for former fighters. In conclusion, I wish to highlight that while we all hope for the best to happen, we must recognize that negotiations and talks are not themselves the end. In fact, they are means to an end. The end is a durable and sustainable peace in Afghanistan, which would guarantee the presence of justice, equality, and development in addition to, uh, to the absence of violence. So we, we don't want only the end of violence, but we want to see progress, equality, and justice in the society. And the Afghan government has every commitment and readiness with pragmatic plans to cherish peace and pursue the path to stability and economic self-reliance. In this path, we count our, uh, on our international partners to support us with our plans, especially in the post-peace progress and we remind our neighbors and the region that peace in Afghanistan is in the best interest of every country and that durable regional stability lies in durable, durable regional cooperation. Thank you, and I look forward to see the, the discussion in the panel. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Mr. Rahmati. Um, when Earl Gast came to me a couple months ago and said we should really do something on reintegration and employment, uh, when Earl Gast speaks, I tend to listen for those that know Earl's. Earl works with Creative Associates International, which is the, um, they have gratefully um, uh, agreed to sponsor this event, so we're very thankful for them. This is, um, 
Earl and I talked uh, a couple months ago. This is a, an issue that is not talked about enough. Here at CSIS, we talk a lot about Afghanistan. We talk about a lot about the military, and I think all of that is really important. Um, we also talk some about the peace process. Uh, Mr. Rahmati mentioned that the focus should not be on the peace negotiations, but the outcome of the peace negotiation being durable solutions. This is something that Tony Cordesman, who's here at CSIS, talks a lot about. This is a conversation that we wanted to have here that makes a couple of assumptions. First is that there will be at some point some durable peace that comes to Afghanistan. It won't, doesn't need to be comprehensive, it doesn't need to be everywhere, but, but at least there is some progress and some hope on the horizon. Uh, we're gonna end this <clears throat> initial round of questions with Ambassador Tony Wayne who will, who will update us a little bit on the peace process, but we wanted to, just so you're not wondering why we're talking about jobs and employment and everything, there's certain assumptions here. Now even without those assumptions, there's a lot that we can be doing in Afghanistan and that there's a lot, as Mr. Rahmati mentioned, that the Afghan government themselves are trying to do on this economic growth, uh, job creation uh, aspect. So. The other reason for convening today is because uh, Mr. Dean P Piedmont, who is sitting next to me, um, really produced, uh, I think everybody got a copy of this, it's called The Reintegration of Taliban Fighters into a Market-Based Economy. And the fact that we're talking about reintegration um, and market-based economies is maybe a little bit of a shift. When we talk about DDR, how many people know, if I say DDR, how many people know what I mean? Okay, this is a fairly tuned-in crowd, so I don't have to, I'll bring it to the New York Times level, not the USA Today level, but essentially we're going to be focusing less on the, um, the disarm and, and demobilize aspect of DDR and more on the R, on the reintegration piece. Um, Dean is, um, has been with Creative, how long have you been with Creative, Dean? In a, working, working with Creative about three years and then came on staff about a year ago. Okay, um, so Dean has done some really important research over the years uh, with Creative on DDR and CVE and um, the SAR and some, and some other alphabet soups that we know and love here in, in DC, but really thinking about places like Afghanistan that, that have some of these challenges. Um, Dean, you, um, you are the senior advisor now for disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration, aka DDR and security sector reform at Creative. Um, you have a long and storied history in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Sierra Leone, uh, South Sudan. Uh, other than Sierra Leone, I, I have personal experience in all those places, and so maybe we can uh, wax nostalgic about the days of yours at some other time. But um, tell us a little bit about why you did um, this excellent report, and I, I reread it last night, and I, I recommend everyone do so. Um, tell us a little bit about why you did that and, and what some of your main takeaways were. Uh, thank you very much, Errol. Uh, what, so we, we get it, right? DDR is disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration, and the real focus is on the reintegration part. Uh, inside of the reintegration, it's an extraordinary, extraordinarily complex uh, field of study, uh, operations, programming, and uh, policies. Um, the, the genesis for for working, this, what you're reading, uh, what you have in front of you is really part of a two-part series that Creative has put together. The other one was an examination of the Stabilization Re Assistance Review, the SAR, which is U.S. government stabilization policy. And we wanted to ask and answer the question, 
is DDR fit for purpose uh, in contemporary conflict settings? Um, how is it positioned and where is the U.S. government in terms of being able to implement DDR-type pr programming? And I'm going to emphasize, uh, when I use DDR, just put quotation marks around it because it's uh, a rapidly changing uh, field and it's often misunderstood. Uh, the genesis for this, what we, just a, a very brief background, we saw a dip in DDRs in around 2012, and we really weren't sure why that dip was occurring. Now, in around 2015, there was an uptick in DDRs, and conditions had changed. These conditions were DDR was being applied in conflict settings. This is something that was not usually the case. DDR was being applied irrespective of the preconditions that were established under a global policy, and DDR was being implemented in settings of CVE, or Countering Violent Extremist Settings. So part of the genesis for this report was to take a look, take an examination of how can DDR be fit for purpose for uh, today's conflicts. What is notable is that uh, every different definition you'll see of DDR positions DDR as a post-conflict tool. Mm. We're applying a post-conflict tool in times of conflict. As a post-conflict tool, uh, we attempt to apply programs. And this is where uh, Creative Associates wanted to create this shift, to re-examine this field of study. Uh, in doing so, we wanted to take a look at how can DDR affect policy outcomes? Because that's what the SAR is about. It's about affecting policy. Programs emanate from policy. What we did is we examined this uh, field of study, DDR, and we offer up a new definition for contemporary DDR that's much more fit to contemporary conflict, much more fit to how the U.S. government is choosing to engage in this space. And the U.S. government is engaging increasingly in this space. So what we put in this, you'll find in the SAR, the complementary reading, is DDR is a political process, very similar to the SAR, whereby policies, programs, and operations are considered in settings prone to armed conflict, at risk, or recovering from conflict. It changes the application of DDR to current conflict settings. So what are the beneficiaries? Who are we now treating when we talk about DDR? Beneficiaries, part of the definition, include typified armed actors, their affiliates or groups from statutory armed forces, um, armies, uh, standing armies, non-statutory armed groups, uh, the Taliban in this case, irrespective of their legal designation. And this provides potential inroads into the CVE environment. So this is a working definition we want to use to further uh, penetrate into this space. This is what uh, Creative has been doing. The main takeaways from the research we found so far is that the Stabilization Assistance Review is fit for purpose when affecting DDR-type programming. It does represent a shift from programs to implementing and operationalizing policy outcomes. The, the economic reintegration of the Taliban requires a 3D approach. This is embedded in the Stabilization Assistance Review. It is defense and development uh, in support of diplomacy affecting policy outcomes. Reintegration needs to be blended. This is nothing new in the DDR community. Economic reintegration for the Taliban requires a commitment to social reintegration, community-based reintegration, and political reintegration in tandem. 
this creates the ballast that's required for a reintegration of the Taliban. And it's a matter of where are the analysis and assessments to determine what these types of, uh, where these would be weighted. We did a further examination of the DDRs in Afghanistan. Since September 11, 2001, there have been four uh, attempts at DDR-type programming. So we do a disaggregation of these programs as well. What we notice is that all of them had some livelihoods component in them. Arguably, all of them had subpar performance in terms of their stated outcomes. We also learned that each of these has valuable lessons uh, that can contribute to upcoming programs of this nature, certainly lessons that contribute to the reintegration or the upcoming reintegration of Taliban fighters and other former fighters. The first DDR program, I won't belabor this point, it was the most traditional in nature, corresponded to uh, the Bonn Agreement, a post-conflict setting, uh, and it used interim stabilization measures to increase absorption capacity. It wanted to identify communities of return, increase the community's ability to accept back fighters, and then return those fighters. Now, operationally, it may not have been completely successful, but the instruments are there. We do know this. Dean, uh, just a quick moment of clarification here. When you say they're trying to create the economic, um, lay the economic groundwork for people to return, is that what you mean by, by that, that more traditional DDR approach? The more traditional approach, and this is where we need to be very careful in terms of the expectations. Uh, is G DDR a job creation program? And it is not. Uh, it is about training. DDR should stop short of expecting to do economic development. Responsible DDR and responsible demobilization type efforts, which can be decommissioning, repurposing, you can use other types of programming, examines the communities where people expect to return, looks at the increases in their economic absorption capacity, is there private sector investment, is there rule of law taking shape, what are the government's perceptions, what, um, what are communities' perceptions, and how can persons be released in a controlled manner into these communities? That definitionally uh, is what happens in DDR. Now, when we look for case examples, and this, we're asked this all the time, can you give us a successful examination of a case for DDR? It's a difficult question because when you look at DDR, you don't find cases, you find aspects inside of every case that are valuable. Yeah. And this is why you need DDR expertise to examine this. One example of a successful DDR no one looks at, and people look at its failures more than its successes, would be the IRA. Why was the IRA's economic reintegration successful? Because the underlying economic conditions existed for their reintegration, the reintegration of former uh, IRA fighters. Um, did the IRA transform into uh, a political platform? Was there successful political reintegration? Again, these uh, underlying conditions existed. So we did a further examination in creative of what are aspects of programs, um, of DDR programs that can be used for Afghanistan that have demonstrations of uh, effectiveness. The Philippines, uh, in its attempt at the normalization of relations, uh, Kosovo's attempt at political reintegration of the Civil Protection Corps, 
South Sudan, which as a DDR was a colossal failure, to be honest, the use of inter uh, uh, interim st stabilization measures to distill the caseload between women, children, uh, and hardcore fighters had enormous benefits uh, in gender. Uh, there are examples from Aceh, which we don't talk about, and Nepal that were successful. There is a host uh, of examples uh, to talk about. Nigeria uh, in the Northeast, uh, initiatives are being started to focus on rehabilitation. Um, Family-based uh, options, which were also tried in Kosovo, that were suggested, um, I think recently by USIP to try in Afghanistan, all uh, come into play. So these are uh, some of the main takeaways. The other three programs, and then I'll, I'll hand the floor back over. There was a commander incentive program. Um, how will commanders be treated? Uh, Taliban, how will Taliban commanders be treated? This was done before. Specialized packages have utility. Uh, it was using a uniform uh, package for all fighters where the shortcoming was, not specialized uh, packaging. There was the DIAG, or the disbandment of illegally armed groups. That effectively confused disarmament with disbandment, but it adequately, or I'll say not adequately, it appropriately addressed um, other armed groups. The peace deal in Afghanistan with the Taliban will be a binary peace deal. It'll be very similar to the Bonn Agreement. Dealing with other armed groups, family-based and community reintegration was a very viable option it was misapplied many years ago. The Afghan Peace and Reintegration Program that ended, I believe, in 2015 was the first time in a livelihoods program where it may have been misplaced, where the Afghan government recognized reconciliation was needed with the Taliban, recognized there was uh, the need for a DDR and a political reintegration with anti-government elements, these other armed groups we're talking about, and refers on at least six occasions to the Taliban as our brothers. These are, now it was misapplied because it was done as a traditional program uh, for political reintegration, but the lessons are here. It's a matter of digging through them, uh, doing the analytics, and understanding how to appropriate them uh, in, uh, in a way that makes sense. Thank you, Abel. Uh, yeah, thanks, Dean. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, what I'm hearing from you is there's, even though places like South Sudan, which I worked a little bit on the DDR program in South Sudan and would unfortunately agree with your assessment of its colossal failure. There were elements of, of that that I think we can learn from and, and all of the other examples that you gave. And so maybe we won't resolve this in the few minutes that we have here today, but it's worth us, and, and maybe we can come back to it in the Q&A, Dean, but it's, it's worth us thinking about for Afghanistan specifically, what elements of those different programs would create, would update the model. I mean, we don't necessarily have to be saddled to the past and how we've done DDR uh, in, in the past. And so I think it's worth thinking about what elements from other places might actually work in a place like Afghanistan, which if anybody's been to Afghanistan, it's a stunningly beautiful country. It's also an impossible country because it's mountainous, it's really rural, it's, it's you know, got some of its own uh, challenges that are, that are unique to Afghanistan. And so we need to be selective when, and we need to be thoughtful about which lessons we apply from, from where. Uh, another takeaway, Dean, is that 
the economics, the, the market-based aspect of this really matters. And we're not just talking today about former fighters. We're talking about vulnerable people in general, at-risk people. And so we've asked um, Ruhla Osmani, a good friend of, of CSIS and a, and a regular contributor here, um, to come and talk to us a little bit about private sector growth, governance, and, and other areas that are, that are critical to, to reintegration. Um, Ruhla is, he's an international development expert, and I, I think expert sort of undersells uh, you, Ruhla, a little bit. I think you're one of the leaders in your field, and, and you've had lots of experience not only in Afghanistan, but in Pakistan, India, U.S., and, and 20 other African and Asian uh, countries. Right now, you're a, you're a senior advisor here with, to the Asian Development Bank's North America Representative Office and also uh, a visiting scholar at, at SICE. And so you've, you've written a lot, you've published a lot, you've, you've really thought about a lot of these uh, issues that, that are really uh, sort of create the foundations for successful reintegration. So would love some of your thoughts on, on how you think about these issues. Uh, thank you, Earl. Um, good morning to all of you. Uh, I, uh, I'm pleased to be here on the panel with all these uh, real experts. I, my expertise on the, on the peace side and uh, reintegration side is uh, limited compared to other panelists, but I would uh, touch base, as you mentioned, on the economic aspects uh, of uh, this post-settlement post scenario that Afghanistan will soon hopefully go through and um, and what inshallah what, inshallah and what what uh, what uh, the international communities uh, afghan government and other regional players could do not to repeat uh, what afghanistan went through um, uh, two decades ago afghanistan uh, before going to other examples afghanistan itself went through a similar experience of uh, post uh, post cold war situation where where the hope was that after the Cold War, uh, uh, Afghanistan will be transformed and uh, there will be economic support uh, and, and uh, that will open a new chapter for, for the country. What happened was the lack of long-term uh, support to, to help what is now we're talking about, youth, uh, disadvantaged returnees, and that, that created another civil war. So what we are thinking now in the international community, my agency, Asian Development Bank, and the other IFIs, World Bank, IMF, are, are, are doing is now to, uh, to think of a post-settlement uh, economic package that, that can really respond to medium to long term of uh, this transformation process until Afghanistan really uh, uh, take off and uh, stand on its own feet. So uh, the, the, um, the peace uh, process, uh, Ambassador Wayne will talk about, will, uh, will bring uh, opportunities, uh, as, as we all know, but at the same time, and the risks. Uh, uh, the, the opportunities, uh, uh, on the opportunity side, I just wanted to highlight that uh, comprehensive uh, peace uh, and security improvement and security will really boost the the investor's confidence to bring uh, private sector investment to create jobs and, and, and uh, help uh, transform the economic side. And also it will facilitate the repatriation and return of capital and that, that is flowing out of Afghanistan for the, and the lack of trust in the security. 
uh, and also uh, it will it will allow significant uh, improvement in the service and quality of service by returning of the skilled labor and immigrant that um, uh, immigrant that will come back and return from other uh, places. Uh, the uh, the the impact of political settlement on economic growth and development will really also and heavily depends on whether peace can sustain and how long that will sustain and on the broader post-conflict institutional environment. The, uh, the peace, settle a peace settlement uh, uh, that results in stability, as I mentioned, will boost not only the economy of Afghanistan, but if you look at uh, uh, recent uh, regional uh, uh, activities within that uh, rich in energy Central Asia and uh, really uh, thirsty powerhouses in South Asia, uh, so stability in Afghanistan will will help facilitate economic growth uh, by by being a, a, a hub for energy, trade, uh, tourism, and other uh, other economic activities. If you look at some of the long long uh, pending uh, trade uh, projects of over ten billion dollar, the gas Tapi gas pipeline, for example, that goes since the nineties. Uh, that is supposed to go from uh, from Turkmenistan all the way to India, um, and that has been um, slow because of the, the the lack of security and confidence on on a key uh, neighborhood, which is Afghanistan, because of lack of security. So that these types of project by itself will will bring a lot of uh, uh, economic growth opportunities, private sector investment. And, and, and facilitate job creation. So post-settlement environment that will ensure uh, a peaceful Afghanistan will, uh, will help region as a whole, not only the country. The, the other issue is uh, uh, a with the peace and security, a rapidly growing private sector will incentivize a sense of national identity uh, among Afghanistan, a, a variety ethnic and tribal groups. Uh, and that will help to start the process of cultural identity and healing that the insecurity and war had not uh, had prevented it for for long for a long time. So this is uh, another aspect of uh, a settlement uh, with economic activity uh, to to uh, to uh, help uh, a nation building process in the country. So in short, a sustained period of peace can uh, can launch many economic dividends uh, for the country. Uh, considering what I, what I just mentioned, there are a couple of immediate needs in terms of uh, post-settlement economic activities that the donor communities uh, and, and, and bilateral, multilateral, and international agencies are thinking about uh, uh, to, to support uh, in, in medium to three years and also five to six years. One of the things that uh, is being considered and is important to consider is uh, if you look at, if you look at the number of uh, returnees and also the demographic, the age, the majority of returnees, for example, coming from Pakistan and Iran, they are between age of zero to 16. Uh, so the need for access to schools uh, is, is huge for, for this, uh, uh, in this uh, community. Uh, so access to school for additional at least one million students is something that uh, they're talking about. And also majority of returnees, as I mentioned, are children. So ruling out operations and maintenance grant to additional school will support improved educational quality and access. 
Uh, and this also will create employment opportunities in a school maintenance uh, space uh, with the investment. The other uh, aspect is the expansion of uh, basic health uh, uh, to people in un unserved uh, areas, especially those places that, uh, are, uh, that, have, that are disrupted by insecurity. Uh, I, I, there was an Asia Foundation uh, survey of uh, the impact of uh, uh, these infrastructure and service delivery on uh, displacement uh, of people. So the places that, they, uh, that, that was from the Asian Development Bank aspect that were looking at the impact of infrastructure on, on uh, people's uh, displacement uh, behavior. That showed that places that had more infrastructure, more service delivery, people tend not to move and uh, start activities uh, despite the, 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 the challenge of insecurity. The, the, uh, the citizen charter in terms of economic opportunity for youth in insecure and disadvantaged area was, was, was mentioned. But there is a, a huge need beyond a citizen charter or an expanded uh, uh, version due of citizen charter uh, to engage uh, the communities in, in places that are not covered uh, under the program due to insecurity. If you look at the agriculture sector as a, as a large uh, economic growth vehicle uh, and also a sector that employ a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, Afghans, investing in agri agriculture and irrigation could increase production. For, for instance, if around, according to some estimates, if around $100 million per year investment is made, it will increase the production by 2.5 uh, million ton, uh, generating over 200,000 uh, jobs in wheat production and agro-industry. So hold, hold on, those are big numbers. <laughs> Let, let's repeat that a second. You okay. said uh, an investment of $100 million would increase yield by 2.5 million tons. Yes, and generating around 200,000 jobs in the period of three to five years' time. 200,000 jobs in three. I, I read somewhere, I, maybe it was in Dean's paper, about how there are about 400,000 Afghan youth that are coming of age right. every year that are going to need jobs. Right. And at least some of those could be. Is, is ADB doing that type of investment or others, or is this just sort of in, in the plans? So th this is the, the, some of the, the numbers that I mentioned here is part of uh, 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 overall donors' uh, uh, package that they're thinking about, okay. including the Asian Development Bank, the uh, World Bank, uh, and others. Uh, that the USAID is also uh, involved uh, as part of this discussion. So this is one, one sector alone that can, can uh, investment can generate, uh, generate this, uh, this number of uh, jobs in medium, short and medium term. Also important is financing labor intensive rural infrastructure and roads that will also ensure maximum employment creation. Uh, as, as, as I mentioned earlier, the original infrastructure project. For example, according to another World Bank estimate, investing $50 million in this scheme would generate around 1 million workdays per year for unskilled and semi-skilled workers and deliver more than 1,000 roads and connecting unserved areas. So uh, uh, this, with, if you look at the amount of investment they're, they're talking about versus the huge investment that has gone and the number of jobs uh, that could create to respond to uh, the challenge of uh, job creation and also with the peace settlement, the returnees, uh, that, will, that will be one res another response to that. And last but not least, uh, uh, Afghanistan needs to look into uh, creating uh, new drivers of growth. 
uh, to reduce poverty uh, and, and support activities. Uh, without ac accelerated reform and improved security situation, would likely to remain sluggish. So that's the institution part that later we can discuss during the Q&A, that how uh, the country can really build an enabling environment uh, for private sector to come and engage. Um, so uh, therefore, I think institutional reform to attract private sector to respond to this need is key. Uh, be, be, before uh, I, I go into the this discussion of the institutional reform, or maybe later during the discussion we can touch upon, there is an interesting case that uh, 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 that Afghanistan can can learn from in terms of uh, rule of private sector and, and and reintegration and disarmament process, the El Salvador case. Mm -hmm. Uh, so one successful reintegration program uh, was in El Salvador in 1990s. Uh, actually, it was around the same time of uh, post-Soviet in Afghanistan, and Afghanistan should have started learning. And then with a peace accord signed between the Salvadoran uh, government and the FMLN. Some of the key lessons that DDR program uh, should, uh, should uh, consider is important in case of Afghanistan. So number one lesson uh, from that is don't think that demobilization, disarmament, and political reintegration must be sequential as uh, some parts of DDR may overlap or may be separated by distance of years. Uh, also, mobilization and disarmament can take place without political reintegration. Uh, occurring as political integration, as you know, uh, take, take long time. Uh, nevertheless, most analysts believe that uh, political integration component is perhaps the most important part, that it, uh, it generates sustainability of peace agreements. So the lessons conclusion for Afghanistan is a major push in private, major push in private sector investment and export-led trade can begin before the demobilization and disarmament can take, uh, can be as begun. So the major projects that have time to contract and establish project management as uh, the combatant go through a peace and reintegration transition program. So this is the lessons that Afghanistan can learn from uh, a program that worked elsewhere. Lesson number two is uh, one of the biggest challenge in El Salvador was um, the pragmatic approach to reinsert uh, the combatant population into agriculture sector, which was uh, undergoing significant structural crisis, and agriculture activities were simply not profitable in El Salvador. The lesson always uh, shows that if a reinsertion re of programs or to have any chance of success, they must be designed and implemented within the sound programs in order to insert ex-combatant into profitable economic sector. So the conclusion, the lesson for Afghanistan is, one technique could be used, which is successfully, again, used in El Salvador, that Afghan government may consider use of an agricultural land transfer system and, and incentivize, uh, to incentivize uh, Taliban living in rural areas. It could provide a protected source of income and also an uh, economic take for their families. But of course, Afghanistan on an institutional uh, part the land, land reform in Afghanistan is, is a challenge and that's one of the recommendations that the, the government and international community should, should tackle that. Lesson number three for international partner from El Salvador is to uh, utilize the UN or international organization to monitor and report on the implementation of the peace from all sides uh, in a transparent and ver uh, verifiable way. Uh, again, on it for, inter uh, for international community, 
it, and uh, the U.S. government perhaps uh, should join with international donors to resource the DDR or peace transition process fully and uh, should draw on the knowledge and experience of the most effective Afghanistan assistance programs that, uh, that Dean discussed, uh, some of them. The final lesson uh, from there that I thought is relevant to Afghanistan, it's critical that all parties to the peace have the ability to control and deliver their, their combatants for demobilization and disarmament, uh, thus keeping their leadership structure in place throughout the transition process will guarantee a sustained implementation of the, the reintegration process. So these are a couple of the uh, interesting, I thought, little, um, relevant lessons that, uh, that uh, we can uh, think about when we, uh, we design uh, or support any reintegration program. I, I, I think that should be enough for my time right now, but I'm happy to engage in a discussion on the institutional reform of the Thanks, Rohala. And, and I, I love how you, both you and Dean talked about examples from other places. This is a discussion about Afghanistan, but I think as we think about what's next for Afghanistan or what's even now for Afghanistan, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's learn from what we've done in other places. So I think it's, it's excellent that, that both of you brought that up, and thank you. Um, one really critical thing I think you said was there has to be a focus on health and, and education. and. I'm not the world's expert in DDR. As the moderator, I don't have to be, thankfully. Um, but if DDR doesn't, and especially the reintegration piece, doesn't include support for the families of vulnerable people, then what are we doing? Right? This is not just about a job. This is about safety nets. This is about services. This is about education. It's about health. And so I think that was a really important piece that I didn't want to get uh, have get buried. Um, Yeshim, uh, thank you for being here. Yeshim Oruch is uh, a good friend of CSIS uh, and, and a, a longtime development professional uh, who is with the UN uh, Development Program. She has over 20 years experience uh, in programs and partnerships, in ma mainly in the field, in UNDP's country offices. This is a I think DC, ever since late 2016, is a new experience for you, Yeshim. Uh, you're, you're normally on the implementation side uh, in Turkey, Romania, and, and recently you were the, the country representative, the country director in Albania. Um, we, we're grateful to you for, for being here because you always have very smart things to say, but UNDP has worked on these DDR issues for years, including in Afghanistan. and so. Please talk to us a little bit about UNDP's experience on DDR, the degree to which you can talk specifically about Afghanistan, that's great. And then, you know, if you can broaden the lens a little bit to talk about the UN uh, and, and what their, their role is uh, in this, that would be, that would be really helpful. Um, thank you so much, Errol. Thanks um, for giving UNDP the opportunity to um, engage with this distinguished panel. Um, Ruhullah, you concluded with a remark on the role of the international community, that um, going forward, there will be, we assume, some role or another of a third-party international community partner to Afghanistan in its efforts during and after the peace um, agreements are concluded with those assumptions. But um, I think, um, therefore, it's very important to reflect also on how the international community, the UN side, is organizing around DDR. So I'd like to make maybe three points, and they build um, a lot on what my colleagues have already said. 
One, I think, builds very much resonates with what Rola was saying. Afghanistan cannot afford to wait for conflict to end to start thinking about reintegration. And whatever reintegration strategy is in the minds of Afghan officials right now needs to be so much embedded and, and, and built on an economic development strategy and vision. It cannot be independent of that. And this is very much the lesson we have from our experience in Afghanistan in the early 2000s, mid-2000s. Um, the challenges are, I, I need not repeat, Mr. Barakat already did um, talk about the numbers, but I need not repeat the scale of the challenge. We're looking at millions of returnees, IDPs, returning. In this context, I think, Dean, you made the math there, so 2% of this you know, bulk of potential reintegration beneficiaries are, are former are, are ex-combatants. But whatever we do, any reintegration strategy must, must, must be driven by um, a market analysis and, and, and market-based forces. Um, Rola, I also really appreciated um, that you reflected on the broader development investments and how they provide the engine that would allow for absorption of ex-combatants as well as other vulnerable communities. And that was in my talking points that I got from Kabul last night as well, um, saying that you know um, whatever the international community does, we need to, one, learn from our past mistakes, and I'll get to that in a bit, but whatever we do, we must be working with a, uh, an economic market growth um, strategy in that context. And on, on, on the past mistakes, I think that probably was the um, Achilles heel of the past work. UNDP did lead um, a lot of the reintegration programs in the early 2000s with, UNA, uh, with the UN Assistance Mission to Afghanistan, with UNAMA. Um, we did implement um, a lot of the reintegration programs and perhaps the, the weak, and I'm happy to talk about this further in, in, in the discussions, but the weakest link is really the linkage to the markets. Um, we have not been able to provide assistance packages that were that were aligned to or, um, or, or that were fit for purpose for the activities that the beneficiaries themselves were to um, carry out in their own activities. Very much supply-driven reintegration support. Here are packages, foot soldiers to commanders. Here you take them agricultural or business development rather than tailored to the real economic problems, issues in the host communities where they would, in, in their own communities where um, they would be taking up livelihoods or, or, or whatnot. We tried to correct mid-course, de design different packages for different strata of, of ex-combatants, but um, ultimately that's, I think, where um, the whole, um, where the biggest weaknesses, um, biggest uh, weaknesses were. Another issue that I want to mention in, the, in that um, point is um, linked to hard-to-reach areas. Um, Rola, you mentioned that already, but whatever we do, we, any future reintegration strategy must be um, must avoid the spotlights of Kabul, but also linked to decentralized um, implementation. In the past, we worked directly, of course, with the DNR um, Commission. Very important to have that kind of political leadership, UNAMA, the, the commissions at ministerial level, but implementation takes place at local level. So it'll be critical going forward to work with local authorities and, and whatnot. Um, I, I want to engage um, a little bit with some of the findings from um, Dean's paper as well um, in terms of positioning DDR um, uh, in, in, in from a program, a project-based approach to a policy. 
We could not agree more at the UN system, at the UNDP with this. Actually, UNDP has already in some ways started doing this. Um, and, and I'm happy to talk about some UN-level alphabet soups of our own. <laughs> and, and I trust you me, we beat everybody on that one. On that, I don't know. The U.S. government's making a play for. I, for... I, you know, I, I'm surprised about that. <laughs> <laughs> that, that there, there are more acronyms maybe with the U.S. government than with the UN. But um, we have multiple working groups looking at repositioning DDR. Um, but bottom line, if I if, uh, the, the main takeaway is that. We need not wait for peace agreements and conflict to end. A lot of the work that UNDP is today doing are, is in, um, in, in the DDR field, um, in Africa, for instance, in, in the Lake Chad region, um, in, in Colombia, Congo, Brazzaville, Cote d'Ivoire. They are not necessarily linked to a peace agreement. So there is a lot of work going on that is very much about during, you know, addressing reintegration challenges during conflict. We're borrowing a lot from um, the PVE area, as Dean, you mentioned, that there's a whole structure, not DDR, but PRR, which is the Prosecution, Rehabilitation, and Reintegration Area that engages with the counterterrorism work. So we're supporting countries in developing their own reintegration strategies in, in that context, and also very much engaging on the gender issue. So from the program project-based approach to a policy approach, the Sustainable Development Goals, number goal number 16, and our UNDP's new strategic plan makes puts DDR as a policy objective mm -hmm. of the international development community. So this is new. It's as of 2016 onwards, so it's, it's very new, and the international um, community is organizing around that. I also um, really appreciated the 3D leveraging. This is something I learned since I've been here in Washington. The, you know, it came uh, very um, strongly in the SAR discussions, in the Stabilization Assistance Review discussions, in leveraging the 3D. In some parallel way, the United Nations is trying to do the same. Our three pillars are the peacekeeping, um, the uh, humanitarian and development pillars. We're trying to put DDR work, uh, demobilization and, and reintegration work across the three pillars in what we call the nexus, the humanitarian peace um, development nexus. And, and I'm happy to talk about the alphabet soups that support that process as well. So that's, that's a lot of resonance there, Dean. Thank you. I think a lot of that made sense, uh, Yeshim. And, and I, one of the reasons I love living in Washington, D.C. and working at CSIS is because we can say things like, let's think about DDR as a policy, not a program. And it's sort of like a mic drops. You know, it's a really fundamental, really important thing that really only we in D.C. care about and, and understand. But I do want to accentuate the fact that this is a profound shift. And as Dean mentioned, this is something that's happening in the stabilization community as well with the Stabilization Assistance Review. This move towards more policy is, is really important. Maybe on that, um, with respect to our work in Afghanistan, we, in, in the 2000s, we worked very much in a project-based framework you know, design a project with design flaws, albeit, but um, design a project and then implement it within three years. Um, that is not an adequate framework. It's not an adequate framework or an appropriate framework to engage with political leadership in the country. It's not the appropriate framework to link to other development initiatives. The self-reliance accelerator packages going forward, the citizen charters scaled up going forward. 
a project as such is not going to be the right way. And then duration-wise, to expect that we would disarm, demobilize, and then reintegrate into these national processes within three-year time frame also was um, a design flaw that we're, we're owning up to. I can see that Nitin is chomping at the bit to comment on the self-reliance piece uh, of, of this. Um, but before we get to Nitin, I just wanted to pull out something that Yeshim said that I thought was really important. Uh, two things, actually. You, you talked, Yeshim, about Afghan ownership, which I think is really, really critical. And, and let's not forget that here. There's a lot of international partners that are going to be involved in these conversations. But truly sustainable work uh, has to be Afghan-led and, and Afghan-owned. Um, and I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, I realize, Yeshim, so I apologize for that. The other thing that, that you said was, this is not just about the vulnerable communities that are returning and the 2% of people that are former fighters. This is about the communities to which they are coming. Uh, back and and I think that focus. I do a lot of work on on um, forced displacement, refugees, etc. And all the time we talk about don't just talk about the refugees. Talk about the communities that are supporting them. Talk about um, economic growth and stability and health and education and all of those things that are really critical for the community members as well. Because if you don't, you're setting yourself up for failure. Um, and it's just not the right right way to go. So uh, I was really glad you brought that up, uh, Yeshim, um, so that I didn't have to. Um, Nitin Madav is... Uh, the currently the acting deputy assistant administrator for USAID's Office of Afghanistan and Pakistan Affairs. Um, he's worked for, for USAID for a number of years, but I think most notably for this conversation, Nitin, you were there post 9-11, helping USAID think about how to, how to be a partner on the ground. And so um, you're, you're not new to this conversation uh, about Afghanistan. Um, and uh, in your bio, it says that you were involved in printing and distributing 10.5 million textbooks for schools after the fall of the Taliban. Uh, and a lot of the, the progress um, that was talked about by, uh, by our colleague from the Afghan embassy, I think um, can, you know, USAID was part of those early discussions. And, and I think uh, you and your colleagues there deserve a lot of credit for that. So um, I'd, I'd love to turn the floor over to you, Nitin, to talk about what USAID is doing in Afghanistan and, and how you're thinking about uh, any and all of this stuff. Sure, thank you. Good morning, everybody. One of the things that we have been looking at at USAID is not to just look at it from a reintegration point of view. And I think we've taken a lot of the comments that um, that Yeshim Rohula and, and Dean have made. And we just recently came up with a strategy, our, it's called a CDCS, a Country Development and Cooperation Strategy, that looks at how we're approaching Afghanistan holistically. And this was designed before the peace negotiations started. And the intent behind this whole strategy was to have something that we could implement peace or no peace, something that would be evergreen and that would be, that would fit as best as, one size does not really always fit all, but to cover as many areas as we, as we could with this. And somebody then asked me, well, what are you going to do if there's no peace? And I said, well, we're basically in that situation right now. So we would implement our programs as, as we're planning. And the, the crux of the strategy here is based on making sure that there's going to be export-led 
private sector economic growth, right? This, and the reason why that this is export-led is because we found, and we've been working in Afghanistan for a fair amount of years now since the very beginning, that we're able to increase the revenues that Afghans are able to generate by a large factor by simply exporting produce as opposed to having that be for internal consumption. So somebody was telling me that a pomegranate, for example, might sell for a dollar. And that same pomegranate, when processed and turned into pomegranate juice, would then equivalently sell for $4 in Dubai or India or some one of those other countries. So why are we going to lose that opportunity for Afghans to add to their value chain by not, by, by just having uh, you know, internal domestic uh, sales? So we're looking at things from that perspective. One of the, our, our hypothesis in all of this is that there does need to be a, a, a fundamental um, emphasis on agriculture because that is going to be the driver of this economy. However, a lot of the value-added processing that I was talking about happens in the cities. So we're focusing on the, the main cities in Afghanistan. So where there will be actually the extra processing and, but the bulk of the goods will be coming from the rural areas. So we're looking at both the rural areas and the, um, the urban areas as well. And additionally, we're looking at some of the extractives. Afghanistan has major deposits of talc, of onyx, marble, other kinds of things that are going to be that are in demand by, by people uh, in, in the Asia region. So it's a really great way for us to look at how we can best jumpstart some of these economic activities and get people involved in that. Part of the issue also is it's not just getting people into jobs because I think if you've been fighting and if you've been a Taliban member for however number of years, you're not going to necessarily want to just jump into something because that's what's offered to you. We need to be able to find a way of getting people into something that's appropriate for them and for their circumstance. So again, a one-size-fits-all does, approach doesn't really work there. Um, and we want to be sure that we're including women in this process as well. One of the issues um, and something that I've come across in a lot of my work is that surprisingly women, I'm joking, but the, there is not a lot of support for the Taliban amongst various segments of, of Afghan female society. And, um, re and we found this also anecdotally in some of our work in Pakistan where we have found women are actively discouraging their husbands from joining insurgents groups because that will then, yes, and their sons, because that will then preclude them from getting access to education and health services. And while this is still anecdotal, I think it tells us a lot about how women are also approaching this. So we want to be sure that we're including them in that process as well. So, um, yeah, that's how we at USAID are approaching things. I think that's really great. I, I'm on the board of a, a small nonprofit here called the Andy Leadership Institute for Young Women, and the, the premise is that uh, not only everything that Nitin said about 
about women, but that women should be included in these peace processes, and when they are, they are uh, those peace processes and negotiations are more successful and more sustainable. So I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up um, the, the women's empowerment piece, and um, Mr. Barakat Rahmati also brought it up in, in his uh, speech, and I think that that's one of the areas where I think there's been significant progress in Afghanistan that's, that's worth building upon. Miles to go before we sleep, but, but definitely uh, something on which we can build. Um, I wanted to turn, the, turn it over to Ambassador Tony Wayne uh, to, to zoom out a little bit for us. Um, as many of you in the room know, there, there's an active peace process going on. It's not perfect. doesn't include everybody that it maybe should, um, but, it's, but it's ongoing. And for the first time in my uh, professional life, uh, you know, like a lot of people in the room, I came of age professionally in a time that Afghanistan was at war and continues to be at war. And now for the first time that I can remember, we're talking about, we're using terms like peace on the horizon in the eventuality of peace. These are, these are things that I think are, are still a little bit aspirational, but at least there's some progress there. And so um, Ambassador Wayne was uh, ambassador, U.S. Ambassador to Mexico and Argentina. He was uh, an Assistant Secretary of State for Economic and Business Affairs, and he was uh, Deputy Ambassador to Afghanistan. He's a senior advisor here at CSIS, and we love to consult him on all things Afghanistan. So thanks for taking the time to be here, um, Ambassador, and, and would love your thoughts. Well, thank you very much, Errol, and thanks very much to all the other members of the panel for their very insightful comments. Indeed, all of this complicated thinking and action is going to have to fit inside the framework of a peace agreement. Um, and we are extremely, uh, I think, encouraged that there, is, uh, there are formal talks going on between the U.S. and the Taliban, and we've just recently had an informal uh, session between Afghans from all different parts or many different parts of society, Taliban and others. And that is encouraging. This has not happened before. So the U.S. Taliban talks have so far, as we know, focused mainly on U.S. withdrawal and countering terrorism. Um, Zal Halazad, the U.S. Special Envoy, has said there are two other uh, big pillars that need to be addressed. One is Afghan to Afghan talks and the other is ceasefire. He has just uh, left yesterday, I think, to go to Kabul and then to uh, Doha afterwards and, and has announced that in Kabul he really wants to talk about assembling a, a delegation that can be representative of Afghan, uh, non-Taliban Afghan society and government to go uh, at the appropriate moment to engage in these uh, negotiations. And, and this is an important change, Ambassador. I mean, because one of the biggest gripes that people had was that the government of Afghanistan and a lot of cross-sections of society weren't involved in the peace negotiations. And that's, you, you just signaled a little bit of a, well, of a course correction there. Well, what I signaled is that the U.S. is going to go encourage this. The Taliban hasn't necessarily agreed to this yet. Um, but it is, it's extremely important because you can't have a, a, a solution until these, especially the Afghan-Afghan talks, get underway. And what we've really been talking about today are things that indicate how complicated this is going to be. 
There are definitely, if we get these Afghan-Afghan talks, there are going to be talks about what the structure of the government would look like, who would get what ministries, how you divvy up other aspects of political power. Um, but it, it's clearly going to be much more complicated to move to a reconciliation and a lasting peace. It's uh, highly unlikely that this is going to be a quick process. Uh, the U.S. has said... Uh, U.S. Secretary of State has said he'd like to see uh, a framework of an agreement by the beginning of September. That's pretty optimistic. Um, but even if you have a framework agreement, filling that out is going to be a long and complex issue. And it, for a lot of reasons. One, the substance is complex. Two, there's not consensus in non-Taliban Afghanistan about how you answer all the important questions. And probably the Taliban have not thoroughly thought through all the questions that are going to arise and the issues that need to be addressed in a, implementing a peace process. Um, so we talked about you know, some of these along the way. Let me just mention a couple of others and how, it fits to get, how some of this might fit together. For example, in thinking about security and fighters, um, there's probably going to be the need for a transition period in which there will be Taliban armed fighters, there'll be an armed forces and police service still functioning for the government of Afghanistan, and there will probably be some sort of monitoring force, whether this is an armed force or a civilian force or some mix of that, we don't yet know. There is talk about the possibility of a, a force remaining to watch for uh, implementing the counterterrorism promises, for example, that the Taliban may make. And so this is going to mean you're going to have several structures coexisting at the same time. How long, we don't know. That all has to be worked out. How they communicate, how they deconflict with each other, how they start this demobilization and reintegration while maintaining certain structures, all has to still be worked out. And it's it's not going to be easy. And then at the same time, you're going to have to deal with the ISIS-K and other rejectionist forces. There will be some people who won't like an agreement, no doubt. How are you going to deal with that? It's highly unlikely the ISIS-K forces are going to like an agreement. So uh, you're going to have to have agreements as to how you deal with them during this period. Um, as was discussed here, you can still start demobilizing, integrating at the same time this is going on. But all of this is going to have to be worked out in some better way during these talks. And that includes identifying the alternative activities for people who currently carry guns. Many people in Afghanistan carry guns. They are unlikely to give those guns up. So you're going to have, during this whole period of time, a bunch of armed people participating, hopefully, in other nonviolent activities. And those activities, hopefully, will encourage them not to take up the guns again, but they're still going to have them there. So you have, to have, you have to figure out how you're going to try to manage this process, and then you're going to have to adjust it as it goes forward, because some of the programs, some of the efforts won't succeed, they'll run into new problems. So you have to have mechanisms for adjusting, for resolving conflicts as they arrive. Um, as was said, jobs and alternative activities are going to be key. Education is an alternative activity. Uh, jobs are going to be a real challenge, and we've heard how much of a challenge that already was for the Afghan government with 
whether it's 400,000 or a million young people coming into the market, with the displaced people who may be returning, with the smaller number, but uh, a group needing focus of fighters coming back in. I think your paper talks about estimates of 60,000 Taliban fighters. So that's a smaller number, but clearly a number that needs to be uh, focused on with special programs. Uh, we've mentioned, I think, which is right, the agricultural sector is a key sector, and then infrastructure is going to be very key, and the, because those can provide jobs. Um, but these fighters aren't going to take any jobs. They're, you know, if, think about all you've thought about fighters. They come in, they're happy to have peace for a while after three or four months. Well, am I enjoying what I'm doing here or not? Is this taking care of my family? Is this doing other things? So you're going to need programs that incorporate that, as my colleagues have said, and then make adjustments as this goes forward. If you're not creating jobs through the private sector, people have to be available to help adjust those problems. What do we need to encourage more private sector activity? What do we need to more encourage these agricultural markets for export that isn't working right now? Um, and that means you're going to have to have donors and funding available. Um, it's not just, as everybody has all said, it's not just signing this peace agreement and there it is. It's all gone. Uh, it's done. And so governance is going to be a part of this. It's clearly going to be part of the negotiations. Um, but it's going to be really important in, at the local level as well as the national level. How do you handle justice? One of the biggest complaints in Afghanistan has been that justice function doesn't work. And the Taliban relatively has gotten praise because it does carry out justice, harsh justice, but it, it does. So you've got to figure out how is this going to happen locally. If it doesn't, if the transformations don't start taking place, people are going to be very upset. As was mentioned, um, how do you assure that education and health continues, both because it's an activity and important to people, but too, it creates jobs. And so how do you make sure that's being funded? And then certainly donors and the urban population are going to care about women and girls. Uh, more so, not only them, but it will be a priority for them. So we have to, to work that through. Um, have to deal with the illicit economy in Afghanistan. Nobody yet has mentioned drug trafficking. The largest supplier of heroin in the world is Afghanistan. Taliban elements are greatly benefiting from that. Non-Taliban elements benefit from that also. But you have to deal with that illicit economy during this transition or you're going to undermine whatever transitional authority there is. So that's going to be have to be an important part of thinking this through. Um, as was mentioned, the, the donors, the World Bank, others are, are trying to write up frameworks to think about this. That's very important. Those frameworks um, will be presented along the way. They are both enticements uh, and essential pillars of going forward. How all of this works, uh, how much the United States agrees to sustain its involvement here and others, it's not going, there's donor fatigue around the world and there's clearly donor fatigue here, but if you're gonna have success, that they all need to be involved. And the UN doesn't have money on its own. It only gets money for, from other people. Same thing with USAID. It has to be approved by Congress. So um, we have a, a, a lot of good signs going on, but a really complicated process before us. And we have to remember, if you get to a bad piece, 
it's going to be tremendously costly if, if it really results in a new civil war, if it results in new ungoverned spaces, if it results in regional uh, intervention in Afghanistan. So we have to think through as we're going forward too, what are the real costs of a piece that we get right versus a, a piece that we get wrong? And this is going to take a lot of uh, intense and good thinking uh, by all of us who are interested in Afghanistan, uh, not only here, but in, in other key capitals around the world. Um, and so what's really needed right now is, is really continued hard engagement uh, by everybody to get this right and, and, and avoiding the sort of bombastic rhetoric that sometimes we've, uh, we've heard about what the options are or what's going to happen. Uh, there are a lot of good possibilities out there. It is very hopeful, uh, but it is a really tough slog ahead to get this right. Thank you. Thanks, Ambassador. I want to open it up. Uh, we're going to take two or three questions uh, from the audience, and I'll just group them. My, my colleague Stephen here has a, has a microphone, so he'll be walking around. And when you do speak, let's start with this uh, woman right here, Stephen. Um, when you do speak, please uh, stand up and tell us who you're with and, and end your comment in a question mark, please. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you to all the panelists this morning. Uh, my name is Kate Bateman. I'm at the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SIGAR, um, in our Lessons Learned program. And we actually have a, a Lessons Learned paper on reintegration of former fighters coming out in um, late September. So I'd urge this audience to keep an eye out for that. And um, I hope I'm biased, but I think it'll be an important contribution to this conversation. But my question is uh, specifically about reintegration of ex-combatants. And um, I'm hoping maybe Dean or others could speak to this. But some of the challenges there, you know, there are obviously significant um, contextual and you know, programmatic risks to this kind of targeted program. And some of the things we've found in assessing all these, these four or five reintegration programs in Afghanistan is the challenges with vetting fighters. How do you determine eligibility criteria? Um, is, you know, are act, full-time active fighters um, uh, eligible for greater or different benefits than part-time fighters? Fighters who have, you know, there are many different contexts for Taliban fighters, some are living in their communities. It's not like they're going to be returning back. Um, some are going to be returning from Pakistan with their families. Um, how do you ensure physical security? That's, that was a key reason these other reintegration programs failed. Um, so I'm wondering if you could speak to some of those challenges, as well as a key one that came up in um, several comments, which is that the, the broader literature on DDR um, constantly, you know, repeatedly emphasizes the importance of not privileging one group over others and ensuring that the whole community has access to, um, to these benefits, to a peace dividend. Um, but in practice, it's extremely hard to do that, to ensure that you're not sowing resentment by providing um, three meals a day and vocational training to former fighters when everyone is in great need and has been traumatized by 40 years of war. So. If you could speak to some excellent. of those. Excellent. Thanks for being here. Um, look forward to that report. Uh, excellent questions about um, vetting and, and everything. I saw, uh, yeah, Jeff in the back, and then we'll take one comment up here. Hi, Jeff Grieco with the Afghan American Chamber of Commerce. So, you know, what I take out of the discussion today is that uh, most DDRs don't work. 
Um, the ones that do, it's hit or miss on how the implementation go, a little bit of a roller coaster ride on the successful ones. So, and my thinking is that cookie cutters then are likely not going to work for Afghanistan. So I, I think what I'm worried about is that we're looking at the reintegration as kind of the driving force for uh, the reform and the changes that we need to get uh, combatants into uh, into a formal economy in Afghanistan in some way and that their livelihoods are provided. So I, what I think we want to urge and what our, especially our Afghan largest members who are employing thousands of Afghans every day, they're really asking us to look at an integrated program that would uh, have a political component that you guys have been talking about largely today, uh, a political component focused on reintegration and process and, and political acceptance and, and, uh, and accountability for past uh, possible uh, uh, threats to the, to the population. But they also want to see a much more aggressive and maybe not that we haven't approached before. Maybe it's a new model for USAID, which is to have an extremely aggressive private sector led program of investment and export oriented trade investments that go into the country quickly because of the increased security that would be allowed by the peace process or this interim period that Ambassador Wayne talked about and allow the companies to integrate them through their own vocational training programs and not necessarily USAID or donor based uh, programs where they can train them actually in the businesses, give them a livelihood and possible access to a career of some benefit to them uh, vocationally long term, whether that be an agrarian uh, area in agribusiness or in mining or extractives like Rahula talked about. But I don't see, there wasn't a big discussion today about the, private, the importance of a private sector role in Afghanistan has a huge amount of private capital, both outside and inside the country that is willing to be invested in private businesses if the security environment has dramatically improved. I'd love to hear kind of what the panelists think about that idea. Excellent. Thanks, Jeff. And uh, this woman up here, Stephen, getting your steps in today, uh, up here in the front. Steven. She's got it. Oh, she's got it. Okay, great. Hi, uh, my name is Annalise Bernard. I'm with uh, the State Department's Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. So I actually just returned last Monday from two years in Niger, where I was working with State Department and the Embassy on building Niger's national framework on promoting defections and managing the reintegration of ex-Boko Haram and ISIS West Africa combatants. Um, the biggest challenge I think that USG writ large faces, but also just, I mean, the international community working on these things is harmonizing the timeliness of strategically promoting defections to actually degrade the conflict and having it sync up with the aspect of the end of the conflict, which would be the DDR process writ large. How in Niger, for example, and certainly across the Lake Chad Basin, um, people were voluntarily surrendering because they were fatigued from the conflict and the governments around the Lake Chad decided to jump on board with that and actually strategically promote defections to actually degrade the conflict. However, building a market economy in the Lake Chad region is near impossible. And certainly in DIFA, which is a stunted economy and the least developed country in the world, is probably not something we're gonna see for at least 20 years, if ever. 
Um, I look especially to my UNDP colleague over here. Um, so my question is, what does the panel think about working on these sticky topics where it really does have a strategic significance with, you know, pushing the government to support a counterterrorism effort that is a grassroots effort and holistically driven from what they already do, but also harmonizing it with reality, which is that there is no reintegration that's probably going to be likely down there, or at least not one sustained in the short term. You know, there are potentials for doing some like short term cash for work projects. But like I said, I mean, DIFA, which is in Southeast Niger, is a totally stunted market and the conflict's certainly not over. So what does the panel think about harmonizing the timeliness of these types of efforts is my question. Excellent. Bienvenue and welcome home. Thank you for your service. Um, Ambassador Wayne, can I start with you? This is going to be equal opportunity. There were three excellent questions. Uh, four, because my, my friend from Cigar had two embedded in there that I think were really critical. So um, Ambassador Wayne, uh, why don't we start with you and, and move towards me on the panel. And if we get to the end and one of those questions hasn't been answered, I'll, I'll uh, try to call on folks to, to help answer that. So Tony? Well, let me say a little bit, in fact, about uh, transitional justice mechanisms because they, do, they are going to have to be part of this solution. If you're going to have reconciliation, if you're going to have reintegration, you need reconciliation. And so we, as all the friends of Afghanistan and Afghanistan, are going to have to think through the experiences around the world of different mechanisms that have helped societies reconcile. And the Afghans will have to decide which ones they want to use. But we know there are truth commissions, there are peace and justice tribunals, there are amnesty programs, there's re, re, um, um, sort of the healing process where people are uh, making reparations coming back. And then there are institutional reforms like the changes in, in justice and others. And all of those are going to have, or not all of them, some mix of that kind of uh, mechanism and steps are going to have to be part of this process if it's going to work. Because there's great feelings of injustice on many sides in Afghanistan, and those feelings are not going to go away easily as they don't do in conflicts around the world. So this is another part of this that is going to have to be thought through and included in a, a, an approach that has a chance of being successful for peace. So let me add that part. Excellent. Thanks. Nitin? Well, Use the microphone. Oh, right. To Jeff's point, I think we are looking a lot at the whole private sector and how we can really manage all, a lot of the work that we're, that's really something that undergirds the whole strategy that we're working on. The problem for us also is that it takes a little bit of time to just get these things moving. So we're, it's something that we're definitely looking at and we're moving in that direction. I think also making sure that Afghans themselves are also willing to invest is something that we're going to have to look at and make sure that there's kind of just a holistic, it, it can't just be us doing a lot of the work. There needs to be a certain uh, self-reliance component to that as well. So we're going to have to, we're working with the government to make sure that a lot of the investment climate is actually better for, to, to create that environment. So that's something that we're doing. 
Excellent. And, and just to reiterate what you said about the value add on agricultural production, I mean, I think that's got to be a private sector-led thing that will not only turn a $1 pomegranate into $4 pomegranate juice in Afghanistan, but also create jobs in that value chain uh, along the way. So uh, thanks, uh, Nitin, for that. Uh, Yeshim? Um, thank you so much for the thoughtful questions. I just want to pick up on, on that last point real quick. Um, our colleagues working in Kabul reported recently that we, we cannot miss any opportunity to build on dynamic private sector work in Afghanistan, no matter how fragile, no matter how difficult it is. Currently, there are amazing investments in Afghanistan. But I'm, we understand also that for skilled labor, they're reaching out to India and Pakistan. You know, the, like this is mind boggling. So a lot of the work that we're doing, and, and I'm very glad to hear that comment, um, is, is on skills building of young people, et cetera. And, and vocational, occupational education that's provided by the market is the most market driven one. Um, so all of those opportunities are things that we simply cannot miss out on. And, and, and I, I encourage contact with our uh, local presences too. Um, to the cigar question, I, I'm not going to be able to do justice on the whole vetting and eligibility criteria, et cetera. We are revising, the United Nations is revising the standards on DDR. Um, actually, we're launching it 20 November um, uh, within the UN system. We're working on the reintegration piece. UNDP is leading that with the World Bank and ILO. Um, but the entire DDR package has been totally revisited, pretty much following Dean's recommendations. I don't know what the, what the contact, uh, contact was there. But when it comes to the individual vetting eligibility, et cetera, criteria, those would invariably have to be context-based, very, very you know, difficult and, and have to be um, thought through. But also there's a broader discussion of bringing reintegration out of the traditional formal DDR space into um, providing opportunities to anybody who wants to off-ramp, including in Niger. And, and, and the only answer I can, I can give to what do we do is we just simply cannot give up on the broader development framework. I mean, this, it, it sounds sort of self-evident, but we have to continue working with the private sector, civil society, and continue to figure out what it is in Niger or in Afghanistan, that whatever those opportunities are, to build on them. We simply cannot um, lose sight of the need to invest in the agriculture, education, infrastructure, and, and leverage all the resources, including private, that we have to do it. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, Yashim. Rahula? Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, just to pick up on um, the easy question on private sector, <laughs> Jeffrey, um, I just want to... Uh, Wave that magic wand, Rahula. <laughs> Make it happen. The, 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 I, I, I just I want to uh, point out to Jeffrey's uh, uh, own uh, uh, survey that uh, the Afghan-American Chamber of Commerce uh, uh, conducted, un, um, uh, I think, un informally uh, with the private sector leaders uh, across the country and, and American companies. A uh, couple of uh, findings from that survey that Jeffrey and his colleagues had uh, there was, as I think it was important to, uh, to consider when we talk about private sector investment because for the private sector to, uh, to come and invest in Afghanistan or to promote private sector, we need to enable the environment for them. So a couple of the findings that uh, from that survey was 
the the uh, which also Asia Foundation uh, uh, thing found out was the 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 tackling corruption um, across the country is a huge issue that impact the confidence of uh, private sector to come and invest. So this is the key issue that if you want more private sector, you need to really seriously tackle corruption issues at all level. Uh, the second one is the poor institutional and governance and capacity of. Uh, the, uh, the the government institutions that came out of the survey, including uh, some of the micromanaging of major uh, investment decision making, uh, uh, that was uh, something that uh, private sector leaders uh, referred to. Uh, um, I'm, I'm again referring to that informal survey that done by by uh, the ACCA and we Asian Development Bank has not done that. Uh, the, 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 the other thing is uh, the lack of business facilitation support and culture of acceptance by, by the institution there. The excessive tax, uh, taxation of private uh, sector business, 70% plus uh, according to the World Bank doing business. Uh, also uh, the poor private uh, property ownership registration and lack of uh, public land dispute index. That's also as part of that index. And uh, uh, finally, the major border uh, compliance issues, for example, in cost and hours, uh, and failure to implement new custom uh, open window. These are some of the, the, the impediments that came out of a survey that uh, is directly related to investment that came out of the discussion with the leaders of uh, both sides, Afghan, American, and other investors in Afghanistan. So for, 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 for the country to, uh, again, uh, with the achievements that it has in regulatory framework, uh, really with a lot of businesses that came, like telecommunication, transport, uh, electricity, but there is again a huge challenge remain in terms of institutional uh, reform that uh, that's important to to attract private sector. Thanks, Rahula. Uh, Dean, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to start. Uh, I'll try to. Uh, thank you. I'll try to go in order. Uh, on the cigar question, the, the eligibility and vetting, it's, an, it's a good question because it gets into the, uh, the technical aspects of this type of programming. And this is why, as we stated earlier, DDR is the best proximate program tool, policy tool to look at when you look at dressing, addressing foreign fighters because all of the architecture, all of the engineering has been done. Uh, on the one side, and uh, vetting and eligibility uh, is very difficult. You look at a case like Liberia, with an estimated caseload of 40,000 uh, people and 120,000 entered the caseload. Um, so part of the operative question becomes why. Now in the case of the Taliban, we know we're talking about 60,000 persons. If a caseload were to swell to 100,000 persons, there is a problem. And the problem would be what is inherent in the peace deal, look at your political reintegration, look at your policies, why are you addressing illegally armed groups or other armed groups in this agreement? Look at your uh, disbandment of uh, illegally armed groups program that was done in 2007 and start managing expectations around this. So there are ways to do that. Um, we, it, it mentioned a bit about uh, security being an issue. Um, that, we have to be careful. What is our security lens? In the first DDR program, uh, governed under bond, security wasn't an issue. Um, it was a group of uh, everyone who was demobilized had supported the coalition of the willing and were not members of the Taliban. They were well received in communities. 
in the commander incentive program, the explicit idea was to remove commanders from the security equation, and that's why they received uh, specialized packages. Uh, when you looked at the, um, the, uh, the anti-government, the one that addressed Taliban, it looked at livelihoods and did not look at uh, security at all, and it was a security problem. What was the responsibility to protect? The question was never answered, but no one ever addressed it as a political reintegration problem set. They looked at it as a livelihood problem set. Um, on the issue of privilege, yes, DDR programs privilege those who are acute risks to the security environment. That's why we're up here talking about 2% of a caseload of 3.2 million people. It's not about equality, it's about equity. It's about that balance. Um, in the paper um, that you received, we talk a bit about this. So it talks about minimal, it's a minimalist and maximalist theory. That's only three years old. DDR is a practice. Uh, has two decades. Theory has about four or five years, so it's there. Um, Jeff, to your point, um, DDRs don't work, was a statement you said, but we also said well, most. Our, El Salvador, we believe, mm -hmm. is the best model for Afghanistan. We spent a lot of time looking at it. Well, if, if El, I, El Salvador to, is a good model. Ad, yeah. If I may address your question, El Salvador has aspects that would be relevant for Afghanistan. Um, to, to look at it as a model is to develop um, an ad hoc cookie cutter approach without realizing that's what we're doing. Successful DDRs aren't publicized. The failures are highlighted. Successful DDRs um, that we know of, Aceh, Nepal, Sudan, East Sudan, Kosovo, Namibia, Angola, Comoros, Mozambique, Tajikistan, and Guinea. And those are off the top of our head. This doesn't talk about the tactical and strategic successes. This, uh, these are successes when we narrowly define reintegration uh, as the success. I'd like to point out that during the Q&A, he just wrote all those countries on a note card. He didn't have that pre-planned, so that's, uh, yeah. this is my impressed face. I, I, I was trying to do it in alphabetical order, so, but I wasn't able to get there. Um, but your point about um, the private sector is, is really salient. Inside of the DDR, inside of this engineering, the architecture, is something called information counseling and referral services. And in this is the opportunity mapping. And this is where we're supposed to match the ex-combatant who's going to the community and their absorption capacity. In economic terms, in many countries, in Afghanistan, the absorption capacity was based on donor dollars. It was based on the humanitarian and foreign aid community. So what looked sustainable clearly was sustainable insofar as donors were supporting it. In that regard, private sector investment gets back to Errol's point. We have to make certain assumptions uh, for uh, socioeconomic reintegration to work for DDR to be effective. And one is that you have a burgeoning economy. It's why I decided to draw on the IRA as an example of a successful DDR. On the defections, this is a perfect example of where we're talking about DDR as a policy construct, not a program. Uh, the defections is, it may be looked at as policy by the U.S. government, but it's at, or programs, but it's a policy. The difficulty I have so far with uh, the defections policy is we don't know its effectiveness. It has to be tested. A, a very significant potential and a, a possible danger is you are fostering elements of reintegration, 
off-ramping without demobilization with no reintegration plan. This is precisely what we've been criticizing DDR for historically. Now it's the changing face of DDR. Um, you have a second issue with the harmonization. Now harmonization of DDR, the demobilization to reinsertion to reintegration uh, in a peace agreement has been a classic problem, uh, not to mention security sector reform. Um, now we're talking about the need to harmonize legal constructs and systems. And this is a paper that we're publishing Creative Associates with the World Bank uh, later on uh, in the fall. And what we found is that because of counterterrorism legislation, because of the foreign terrorist fighter, the designated terrorist organization, that there needs to be a harmonization of counterterrorism law, material support clauses, civil law, military law, in order to deal with this caseload. And that's going to be the problem set that uh, defections uh, is really going to face. Um, we don't know how credible a practice it is. What creative, but it's fine, this is, we're going to test it. Um, what creative has put forward is the possibility, a concept for a study where we're looking at disparate defection cases. And like I said earlier, you don't look at a case study in DDR and draw the lessons, you look at aspects. So in the defections lens, we found aspects from Somalia where defections are encouraged, uh, gender encouraged in Somalia, Nigeria, where we've set a precedent in working with this, uh, with this group, the DTO and the Foreign Terrorist Fighter Group, uh, and Cameroon, where the government just issued a, government, a presidential decree on DDR, and we're going to look at what are the trends in defection uh, and how this can be done in a way that's supportive of a longer-term reintegration process, irrespective of a program. As a policy construct, will it work and under what conditions? Thank you. Excellent. We've gone a little bit over time. Thank you for bearing uh, with us. Thanks to everybody that joined us online. Thank you uh, to those that came in the room. Before you pick up your stuff and leave, I'm going to ask the panelists to leave us with a tweet length main takeaway. Okay. So, uh, I, especially while they're thinking about that, since I put them on the spot a little bit, um, I'd like to thank Earl Gast and Michael Zamba especially and, and Creative Associates International for, for sponsoring what I think was a really, really, really rich uh, discussion. So without further ado, Dean, tweet at us. All right. I've never tweeted before. My first tweet. Um, DDR is reemergent. DDR is the best proximate policy tool to address former fighters, their associates, and affiliates. Uh, DDR programs should be crafted for policy outcomes to harmonize with the U.S. government's stabilization interest. The foreign terrorist fighter, DTO, and the emerging, we'll see it in the next few months, next year, stateless issue um, is well fit for being addressed through uh, DDR. Uh, activities and programs do set precedent. We're doing this uh, in Nigeria. More research, like uh, the paper you received, is needed. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think that don't throw the baby out with the bathwater is, is the actual tweet uh, in Voltaire. Uh, that's what I have in quotes. <laughs> that's, 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 in, that's a hashtag. Uh, Ruhola? Well, my, my mind one should be very short. Uh, Without accelerated reform and improved security situation, growth uh, likely will remain slow and limited in progress and reducing poverty. Private sector is key. Excellent. Yishim? Uh, microphone, yeah. 
Reintegration is the most complex part of demobilization. International support must anchor to Afghan-led and locally owned development. Oh, great. Something like that. And, and finally, just one, we will literally tweet this one. Um, <laughs> the UN is launching the reintegration as part of sustaining peace DDR module on 20 November. We encourage our State Department and, and uh, government member states to engage with the module addressing exactly these issues. Excellent. You'll get a retweet from us. Uh, Nitin. One size does not fit all. Oh, Excellent. <laughs> Love it. Uh, Ambassador Wayne. Solid hope to craft a successful peace in Afghanistan. U.S. and others need to stay the course. Please uh, join me in thanking uh, the panelists. <laughs>